Good evening, everyone. So welcome to Theology Day, AKA the Gathering of City Church Geeks and Nerds. Um, I'm always bemused, amused as to why we will gather, uh, people will gather on an evening of a Wednesday to come and um, dive into theology. Now, that's probably not the best way to advertise a gathering people to come, but I'm glad you're here. Theology is quite important. It's not, um, you know, it's not, the, it's not the sexiest word in the church today, you know. There's a lot of um, emphasis on emotions and feelings, and all of those emotions and feelings are actually quite good. They are part of what it means to be human. Um, experiences, you know, we're not saying that they're wrong. But if you have only them, and you don't have uh, good theological boundaries, how do you understand a book like the Bible? You know, it's quite big. So... At City Church, we would like to emphasize that um, uh, in building our culture that, sorry, is this place hot or am I the only one? Some people don't want it on. I'm the only one. Can I have that one on? You have to be kidding. It's on. All right. Don't, don't blame me, sorry. It's something called the anointing. It's, it brings fire. All right, so we try to emphasize um, worship, community, uh, mission, justice, uh, prayer, and generosity to build our culture. But also, one that is very important is learning. So now, we're not trying to say we're just a thinking church, but we are definitely not saying we are not a thinking church. And all, actually, all churches should be thinking churches. Paul says that uh, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. So when we see our Bible, it's 66 books put together, and we want to be sure that we are getting the truth from the Bible, what helps us put the Bible together to understand what those 66 books are saying is theology or doctrine, all right? Now, some <coughs> are simpler um, or easier to grasp than others. But human beings are complex. And so in God's revelation to us, um, sometimes some of the issues that we go through are very complex. And so sometimes some theological things themselves can be complex. It doesn't mean they can't be understood truly. It just means that we have to spend a little bit more time and we need to be sure about uh, our precision on, on, on some of those things. So the last theology day, we started on, um, on a particular topic. We asked the question, are we truly free? And what we're looking at was this issue about the, uh, the sovereignty of God and how that relates to the responsibility of human beings. That is, if God is really sovereign, can I really say I'm truly free? Or am I absolutely free? And then God reacts to what, you know, I'm doing. So we make two statements that are quite important. Do we have those statements up somewhere? Two statements that are very important in thinking about that. One, nope, not that one. God is absolutely sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions in a way to, to deny human responsibility. That is, the Bible teaches that God is absolutely, the word absolutely, absolutely sovereign. He's in control of everything. However, when we think about the control of God over everything, <coughs> it doesn't function in a way to say that human beings are not responsible. That, that is, we're like puppets and robots. Because the Bible clearly teaches that we are not. So God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in a way to deny human responsibility. But two, the second statement is humans are morally responsible free agents. By morally responsible, we mean that we choose, obey, believe, decide, 
And because we are morally responsible free agents, we are therefore held accountable for our actions, those particular actions. But the exercise of our wills never functions in a way that makes God absolutely reactive. That is, it is not that when um, Okwe does something, God is waiting to see what Okwe is going to do before he knows how we should react. Now, in time, God does react, but because God is absolutely sovereign, he knew what Okwe was going to do. Do you understand what I mean? God is not absolutely reactive. That is, he's not waiting for all the things that we do to know what he's going to do. So those two statements must be held together if you have to understand what the Bible teaches about human beings' responsibility and God's own sovereignty. Now, we added some other, one, two others to qualify that. And this has to then do with how you think about the character of God, especially if he's in control of everything and we know that there's good and there's evil in this world. If he's in control, why doesn't he just... How does he allow the God who created all things? Maybe it is that God is in control of the good, but Satan is in control of the evil. And then it's about the two powers fighting. Well, so the second two statements are, can I have them? God stands behind evil in such a way that though he is sovereign over it, no evil child can be attributed towards him, but only ever against the secondary agents. In other words, even though God is sovereign, and there is evil in the world, you can't charge God with evil. The Bible teaches the absolute goodness of God. So I think the example I give, I don't want to start going through that because we have a lot to go through today. But it's like if um, the, um, a man electrocutes his wife and she dies, and um, um, the family of the wife now sue the, the electric, the disco, for supplying the electricity that the man used to electrocute the wife, right? And it's in that way. You say, no, 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 no. There was the power that was there, but the person that actually used it is the one who we charge with guilt, not the uh, people who supplied the power. So that even though God is sovereign, we don't charge him with evil. All right? And then finally, God stands behind good in such a way that though he sovereignly uses human agents, the charge of good ultimately comes to him and only derivatively to secondary agents. If you do good, most of the time we say, if you're a good Christian, we say, ah, thank you, Moses. Moses will say, all glory be to God, right? Not to say that Moses did not do the good, but that ultimately the reason for the good, the power for the good, is ultimately attributed to God. Amen? Now, if you went there in the first, in the first one and you disagree with what I've said, sorry, I'm not going to do it again. Get the tips for the last one, all right? But this background is very important to treat what we want to treat today, and I hope that we can finish them. But if we can't, we'll just postpone, all right? Um, how many of us have heard of the word predestination? How many of us have heard of the word election? How many of us, when we heard those words, they caused controversy in our lives? How many of us, in our fellowships or in our churches, they caused controversy? All right. Because you already have a history of controversy with those things. I promise you that today is going to be a controversial evening, all right? I can put that one right from the beginning. However, though controversial, as you know, the reason why you've encountered, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, the reason you've encountered those words is because they are there in the Bible. It's not like it appears in one part of the Bible or...
in three parts of the Bible, it's actually quite, um, it's actually quite, damn, I would even say, a whole lot more than you probably consider. So this sovereign God who's created this world, the Bible says that he's done an act of grace, an act of grace for salvation in the world. If he's sovereign, and all the work he does is sovereign, and human beings are responsible, how does this sovereignty and human responsibility work out in this plan of grace and salvation in the world? That's the question we want to start to answer today and the next two theology days, all right? And so let's look at that. Um, I hope, we, as I said, we can finish, but let's, uh, let's dive right in. All right. It's important for me to set a bit. Can I have some drink? Can I have some drink? It's important for me to set a bit of context here. What's wrong with the world, if I ask? What's wrong? You don't know what's wrong with the world. Everything is wrong with the world. Everything. Eh? Boy, uh, don't, 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 don't set me up. Because nobody knows. My own will be the one that is recorded. Some people will say the problem is global warming. If you are in the West, Africans are like, what? Global what? The sun has always been very hot here. Uh, some people will say it's capitalism. Some people will say it's globalization. If you are one of the intellectual types, if you are a proper Nigerian, you say the problem is tribalism. It's Igbo people, right? Or Yoruba people. Faith, don't provoke me. If, if uh, people that say that Igbo people are the problem in this world, they are the problem of this world. They are the problems, like you. Some people will say that it's the diseases. We have not still been able to eliminate malaria, which is the greatest killer of human beings in the world today. Or unfettered power. Or war. If we can just get, if we can just have world peace, we'll have no problem. Some will say it's sexual liberation. People sleeping with anybody they want to sleep with, and therefore diseases, all manner of diseases come. Some will say it's gay marriage. And that's why God is about to judge America. Forgetting that actually before America got uh, legalized gay marriage, there are other countries that have legalized it. What is the problem with the world? What's wrong with the world? Well, close to 100 years ago, the Times of London posed that same question to their readers. It was a very simple question. What's wrong with the world? Now, they received a variety of answers similar to some of the options I have just given. But there was one answer that stood out. It was by a Christian author called G.K. Chesterton. Listen to Chesterton's response. Dear sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. It seems like a very, it's obviously a very, um, what's the word, a very pithy answer. Um, it, it provokes, you know, it seems witty. And at the same time, G.K. Chesterton was only echoing something the Bible teaches. Now, the Bible would not say that some of the things that I have said, that at socioeconomic levels, maybe certain ways of, um, of, 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 of um, implementing capitalism, it won't say that's not a problem. Neither would the Bible say that diseases like malaria is not a problem. What G.K. Chesterton was trying to say was that at the most fundamental level, at the ground level, the biggest problem with the world is a moral and human problem. The biggest problem with the world 
at least from the biblical standpoint, is something called sin. The biggest problem with the world, we are. That's what J.K. Chesterton is saying. Because while other religions and thoughts, and philosophical thoughts, they'll tell, that the fundament, they'll tell the fundamental goodness of human beings. That is, human beings are fundamentally good. The problem is that we do bad things sometimes, some evil things. But fundamentally, human beings are good. You know, maybe there's a campaign, somebody, you know, I don't know if you come across on Facebook, I've actually done one campaign like that before, where you're trying to save someone the medical bills, you know, you cannot afford, but you reach out to people, and people come in, they, 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 you know, they, they donate. And many times you're like, man, human beings are really good. It's just that those same people that you're talking to, some of those people that donated, are people that maybe slap their wives at home. To which some guys are looking at me and say, what's wrong with that? If you don't think there's anything wrong with that, you are the problem with the world. So the question is this, the guy who donated but actually beats his wife at home, when he donated, was he acting in character? Or was it an aberration? Well, the Bible says that everyone that is born, when we do the evil things, we are acting according to how we are wired. But when we do good things, because we are created in God's image, it is an aberration to what we actually have in our nature. Amen? So what G.K. Chesterton, when he's saying, I am, and that we are the problem in the world, we are talking about the issue of sin. By sin, I mean Evil intentions resulting in actions opposed to God's command and design. Evil intentions resulting in opposing reactions. How did I put it? Do we have it on somewhere? It should be there. All right. Evil intentions resulting in actions opposed to God's command and design. This God that created the world said, for this world to function properly, here are things we should do. And he put laws there for us to obey. When we go against those laws, especially, not just that we broke those laws, we had evil intentions that make us break those laws. When we do that, that's what the Bible calls sin. And that when this is multiplied through all human beings in the world, that is what leads to many of the problems that we have. In fact, let me take you through a couple of metaphors the Bible uses. The Bible says concerning human beings that Again, uh, it's a metaphor, but it describes us as blind. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light. In other words, they are blind. Another one he uses is lost. It says that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Or remember at the time when you were separated or lost from Christ, without hope and without God in the world. One more, or two more. It says in John chapter 3, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Did you notice this? It didn't say that we just sometimes fall into darkness. It says the reason why we do evil deeds is because we love darkness. I don't know how many of us have done stuff that we know we shouldn't have done. Here's the thing. Why do you do it? Many times we say, I didn't, it just came over me. Right? If you are more spiritual, you say it was, the, it was who? 
Well, they were blaming the devil. One day when the devil is going to rise up and say, stop blaming me, it was you. But many times we feel like, you know how they say a lot of guys who sleep with people they're not meant to sleep with. You know that common saying, but you know be, but you know be what? That, you know, when I saw her, there was, it's not good. When I saw her, it wasn't, I know that, I know seeing, you know, as Christian, I'm not supposed to do that kind of thing, but, but when I see her like this, her, my body just do one kind. And body no be what? Firewood. Because if firewood should see it, you, you know, if firewood doesn't react anyhow to a babe. But, prosper, the way you're looking at me is like, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> but I know it's not about any babe in City Church, right? No, no, no. But, you know, you just see somebody, you say, something just did my body. Something just did my body. In other words, many times when we fall into the temptation, it's because we feel powerless. We know what we're not meant to do. But there is a desire we have towards the thing that is wrong. They loved darkness instead of the light to show that their deeds were evil. So it says blindness. It says um, uh, lostness. It also says that we love darkness. And ultimately, probably the most damning um, metaphor used for our condition is death. As for you who were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 2. Dead. Blind. You know, if you had an eye defect, if Elijah, you, have, you, you, you obviously have an eye defect. If you have an eye defect, I actually used to have before. But don't forget, I'm anointed, he's not. So I, I, just, I just let go. But someone with an eye defect will go to an ophthalmologist, right? An ophthalmologist can both help you diagnose what's wrong and also provide correction. Somebody that, is, that has an eye defect can go to an ophthalmologist. Imagine a blind man going to an ophthalmologist, blind from birth. What can the ophthalmologist do? They can pray. But really, the condition of blindness is beyond their pay grade. The first one, an eye defect, there was hope. The second one, it was hopeless. Many times when we are ill, where, where do we go to? The doctor, right? You have a headache, you have a running temperature, you have a um, stomachache that just wouldn't go. We go to the doctor. Doctor, doctor, help me. Because you think the doctor will help you. And the doctor asks you the symptoms and when did this start, all of those things. The doctor now says, all right, go to the pharmacies, get this, get this. And you, you go on the, on the medication. After two or three days, you are back. The doctor helped you when you were sick. I don't know how many of you have experienced this, but I have. Have you ever taken a dead person to a medical, to a hospital? I'll never forget that I did that because we thought the person just collapsed. The person collapsed, but we thought the person was still, and we took, the doctor came out, and we're like, ah, please, quickly, quickly. The doctor came. At that point, I was like, why is he coming with, you know, the stethoscope? He started touching and just did like this. First time, just did like this. And he walked back. Why did he walk back? because there was nothing he could do. When the Bible describes our spiritual and moral state, it uses metaphors that show our total inability to really please God. It says we are blind. 
It says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is why in other places, if some people may say the problem with the world, some other religions may say the problem with the world is bad, but it has hope. It's like we have an eye defect. It's like we are ill. Christianity says that the problem with the world is hopeless. It's not just that we are sick. We are sick unto death. It's not just that we have an eye defect. We are blind. How did this happen? Well, it says, actually, when did, or when did this happen to us? It says, when we were born. Psalm 51, verse 5, David, after he had committed a grave sin against God and he's lamenting. You know what he says? He says, in sin did my mother conceive me. You know, when we look at little children, they all look very cute, as they? Wonderful, you know, when they first come out, oh, God, you know, potential for life. I'll take care of you. This child is so cute. <laughs> three days, just three days, you will start to hate the child. Not really hate, because, you know, as, as parents, we can't say, I hate this child. <laughs> but you know the things that you say, like, especially when it's not even your own child. Like, can't you keep the child quiet? <laughs> For everything, you give them ticket. <laughs> and then you now start to realize that that child, after like three months, that way, way, the child is actually thinking. They, they know. You know this? You give them, you give them the food. Is it okay? Are you okay? You check the nappy. Everything is fine. You drop the child. As you just drop the child, <laughs> you carry the child up. Ah, what's happening? Are you okay? The child keeps crying. Okay, it's fine. Put it. What does the child? The child is using you. <laughs> it knows that you will respond when they cry. That is what we call manipulation, or what the Bible calls the sin of witchcraft. So, congratulations, all of you that have children. Your children are witches and wizards. I'm just quoting the Bible. But what the Bible is fundamentally saying is that from the inception, the child, we inherit sin. Now, I am not saying that a two-year-old child is Adolf Hitler. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, though, that a two-year-old child and Adolf Hitler are suffering from the same condition, according to the Bible. In fact, when... Paul is thinking about the whole of humanity. Or sorry, the writer of Ecclesiastes basically says, because of this condition, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says, indeed, there is no one on the earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. No one on the earth who is righteous, no one who does always what is right and never sins. There is no one. So Paul, at some point, says this. In reflecting on the whole of humanity, Paul in Romans chapter 3 says, as it's written, there is no one righteous. He's thinking of Ecclesiastes 7, not even one. There is no one who understands. In other words, that sin has affected our minds. You know, many times we say, ah, all these yow yow boys. When you think about what some of them do, right? When you think about how they scam, you know, many of them, they learn uh, programming languages. Right? They learn how to do algorithms. If only this guy used this thing for what? For good. I used to hear that many times they used to recruit into the intelligence agencies in, in the US people who were fraudsters. Because they said that ah, this person, for him to be able to commit this fraud, he must be smart. And we can recruit him, give him a plea bargain, so that he can actually help us find the other, other fraudsters, isn't it? It's not that we are not smart. 
but is that our understanding, our, 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 our thinking has been encapsulated and captured by sin. There is no one who understands. He also further says, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one who does good. Like, ah, but somebody did a good thing. Here's what he says in Isaiah 6, 4. It's not that you don't do good, but even your righteous deeds, especially when you want to use them to justify yourself, they are like what? Filthy rags. And you know what those filthy rags were? It's like a, a woman's used sanitary pad. That's what it meant. Absolutely disgusting in God's face. Yeah, but, yeah, but I, I don't know. Sometimes I really do what is selfless and what is good. Because at the end of the day, he's saying that at the, at, the, at the very heart of it, we are not selfless. We are selfish. We are not selfless. We are self-centered. Like, ah, no, I'm not self-centered. Really? Okay. You know when, let's say we took a group picture now. I say, everybody come, let's take a group picture. And so they take the picture. And so Eva now comes and looks at the picture. Eva says, this picture is not fine. Why did Eva say this picture is not fine? Huh? Because Kemi looked absolutely radishing in it. Yemi, okay, let's not use Yemi. B.A. looked very nice in it. Dami looked uncharacteristically okay. Virtually everybody looked okay, but Eva says, this picture is not good. Why? Because it wasn't, because every time you look at a good picture, who is the first person you look for? Self-centeredness. So that even many times, when we do what is right, what is good, when we help somebody, we are still waiting for the person to say thank you to us. When the person doesn't say thank you to us, we start thinking, how can this person not appreciate me? There's always something attached to our goodness. There is some self-centeredness under it. And the Bible says that when you do that, you are breaking the commandments of God. And when this kind of behavior is unchecked, unfettered, multiplied throughout the whole world, this is why the world is in the chaos that the world is in. What's the history of how we got this? Well, let me just point to uh, uh, Romans 5 verse 12. Two things I want to say there and then we'll transit into something else. Romans 5 verse 12. Now, don't forget, when God created human beings, the Bible says that in the creation, everything was good. Each time was creating is good. But when it gets to the creation of humanity, it says it's very good. Created in God's image, very good. So you think, okay, those who are created in God's image that are very good, why is it now that the Bible, as you progress through what the, the Bible's pages, because that was said at the very beginning of the Bible, but as you progress through the Bible's pages, it's now giving a dire view, a bleak view of humanity. Well, Romans 5 verse 12 helps. Listen to what it says. Can you guys hear me well? Because I can't hear myself well. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. I'll say it again. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. First thing, Adam sinned, and I don't want to get through all of this, but he had the motivation to be like God. And 
there was the embodiment of evil called Satan. Satan tempted Adam's wife, and Adam also followed suit. Right? Idolatry was the motivation that made them break God's command. Now, because Adam sinned, we inherited Adam's nature. Notice what it says. It says, just as sin entered the world through one man, because all sin. In other words, we got, Adam is um, the father of us all, right? We all inherit Adam's DNA. Adam sinned. There was no sin in the world, but Adam sinned. And through him, sin came into the world. And so all those who are then made in the image of Adam, that is, i.e., everyone, we have inherited Adam's nature. We share Adam's DNA, and he has given us a sinful DNA. And you say, no, no, no. How do I know that? He says, because all sinned. Because all sinned. We have sinned just like Adam because we are like Adam. Amen? Second is, we inherited his sentence. We inherited his sentence. Notice what it says. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. When Adam sinned, there was a consequence for it. God says, in the day that you eat of this tree, basically in the day that you break my commandment, you will surely die. And that death is a two-step process. One is physical death, which is the greatest thing that we have in this world. Ultimately, no matter when a loved one dies, no matter how, how old they are, we still mourn them. And there's something about it that viscerally we say that's, that is wrong. There's a way we react to it sin. Even when we don't know some people, it's because this is a consequence of when we behave as human beings are not to behave. But that's the physical death, but the physical death is a precursor for eternal death. Now, some of us would say, why Adam? I mean, I wish it was me that was in the garden. I mean, after all, there were so many commandments. I wouldn't, just one command, just one command. Well, Adam was actually a very good representative. That's what the Bible shows. That is, it's not just that he was the first, and so we inherited what he did. But that because he was good when God created him, he was put in a position where even if you were placed in that position, you would do the exact same thing. So how do I know that? Well, trust me, you already sinned, don't you? So the Bible teaches this way, that no matter who it was, especially us here, we would all have done the same thing. Adam is representing us very well because if we're put in the same position, all have sinned. We would have done the same thing. Amen? So this is the very difficult condition that we find ourselves in. Now, if, all, if we're left to this, this sinful, helpless, depraved condition, which the Bible says, without any hope in the world, unable to save ourselves from God's wrath, that is eternal death, it is in this context that God's plan of grace and salvation comes. It's grace because we are unable to do it ourselves. We can't. We already have the condition that condemns us. We cannot but sin. Now, the question then is, who should God save? If I ask the question, in this kind of context, who should God save? Those that are worthy, maybe that will be an answer that you give. Like, okay, God, save those who are worthy. How many of people are worthy in this condition? 
Toki is saying, they look Toki's grimace. No one but me. But the truth is, no one is going to be worthy because everyone has sinned. Then you say, okay, maybe God should save those that of themselves want God. Well, the problem there is that it says nobody understands and nobody seeks God. Or maybe you say those that of themselves will take the opportunity that, for salvation that God has given. But don't you get it? We are spiritually suicidal and morally unable to do so. In other words, if you gave a human reason for why God should save faith or why God should save Tommy, there is no reason that we can give in faith or Tommy's own. Or, or, there's no human reason we can give that will show that faith or Tommy deserve it. Amen. In other words, because the situation is so dire, God must provide a gracious way, a gracious way, that is, a way of salvation that nobody deserves to rest upon the sinners, to choose, he must completely be sovereign over the means and the people. If God is going to save anyone, those whom God will choose and the way that he will provide, it has to be not just gracious, but in a way that the human beings themselves have no real power over the situation. Because if God gave us, if God says, you know what, I'm devising a way, but I need you, Temidayo, to complete it. I've done 99% of it. Temidayo, all you need to do is 1% of it. You know what Temidayo is going to do? He's going to mess it up. So God's grace comes in a way that he himself sovereignly, sovereignly has the, sovereignly uses the plan and, the cho- and his choice to save sinners who are lost. Now, what do I mean by this sovereign plan? So that brings me to the second, the second part of, of this talk. Ah, Tyler, won't finish this thing. Okay. So I'm going to come out and just let me lay my cards on the table. In Jonah 2 verse 9, Jonah says, salvation comes from the Lord. What is implied in that statement, salvation comes from the Lord? Say, of course, I'm not going to deny that. But what he implies there is that salvation comes from the Lord from the first, from the beginning to the end. Which means that this work of saving grace in God's world, the ultimate reason for his divine revelation has to be sovereignly done by him. And he does this by planning before time and effecting within time. Let me say that again. I repeat after me. God's sovereign plan of salvation means that he plans it before time and effects it within time. Do you agree? He plans it before time and he effects it within time. What do I mean by plans it before time? Well, his sovereign way of saving, of save, of saving means that he not only ordains the way, he ordains the people. Look at Revelation 13, verse 8. Revelation 13, verse 8. His sovereign plan of salvation is through Jesus Christ. But here's what he says in Revelation 13. He says, all those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, he's saying 
they're condemned. But notice what he then says. He says, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. The lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. What is God's plan to save people? Through the lamb. That is Jesus Christ, all right? When was he slain? Now, we would say 2,000 years ago, right? According to historical records, right? Revelation 13 verse 8 is saying, yes, effected within time 2,000 years ago, but planned before time, before the creation of the world. That's the plan. But what about the people? Open to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, 4 to 5. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. For he chose us in him. That in him, if you reach verse 3, you see that that in him is Jesus Christ, okay? For he chose us in him. So Jesus Christ is the way, right? In him. When? Who are you reading there? When did he choose us in him? Before the creation of the world. Remember, the lamb slain before the creation of the world. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy. So he chose us onto a certain path. To be holy and blameless in his sight. In love. In love he predestined us. Chose us. And in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Mm. Is it what they, is it what they, how many of us know what they here? All right, Toki, all right. Is it what they, Christian, as far as you know? Toki says like this. Uh, uh, sorry, not talking. Tedu, Tedu says like this. Right? Is Tedu a Christian? Uh, he's not. <laughs> as far as the other people that don't have beef for her, is she a Christian? Yes, all right? Because she teaches our children. So, Fouquet, I hope she is. Or oh, is a Christian. Why is she a Christian? Because she put her faith in Jesus Christ. What is that scripture telling you, though? In God's mind, when was she chosen? When was she a Christian? Before what? Be, I'm just asking. I'm not, just based on scripture. Before what? Mm. Now, was she chosen outside of Christ? Because it said she was predestined in him before, that's Jesus Christ, before the creation of the world. Now, this trips up a lot of people. Because this brings us to this thing about election. Does God choose people that he's going to save? Now, first of all, before you do that, you know the Bible, um, depending on what aspect of the plan of salvation that we're experiencing, the Bible gives us different identities. What do I mean by that? Most of us here who are Christians, we also refer to ourselves as believers. Right? Why do we refer to ourselves as believers? Because part of what it means to become a Christian is to put your faith in Christ, isn't it? It's because you had faith that you can be called a believer. 
Sometimes, also, we are referred to as saints. Do you know why we're referred to as saints? Because part of what it means to be a Christian means that we are sanctified. Sometimes we are called sons of God. Do you know why we're called sons of God? Because part of what it means to be a Christian is to be adopted. God is now your father and you are his son. You see, different aspects of salvation. Why are we called children, not sons? Why are we called children? Because part of what it means to be a Christian is to be regenerated, to be born again by the Spirit of God. Are you following me? We are called redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Why? Because part of what it means to be saved is to be what? Redeemed or we have experienced redemption. And other times, like in Romans 8, it says, who shall bring a charge against who? The Lord's elect. Why? Because part of the salvation plan is that we are chosen of God. We are elected of God. And this is all through the scriptures. Now, why do we say that? Let's open to Romans uh, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Oop. Verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All right, Abi? That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. A few years ago, um, I was leading a Bible study. And I started to teach this strange thing in the Bible study. I started to debate, to say, ah, it looks like the Bible teaches that God has chosen those whom he will save before the world actually started. That God actually knows and has chosen those who will be saved. And as I said in the very beginning, if that's a controversial thing for us here, it was a controversial thing for people there. Because there are so many implications that we'll talk about that. And so if, if God has chosen, then why should we evangelize? Why should we pray? All of those things. So that rubbed a, a few people um, the wrong way. Now, one of my mentors at the time came visiting. He came to teach. And because some of the people were ruffled by that, they asked the question. He said, is it what this whole thing about election and predestination, is it true that God has chosen those who will be saved before the foundation of the world? And the person said this. He said, the issue about predestination is this. You know Lagos Ibadan Expressway? You know Lagos Ibadan Expressway, right? If you start from Lagos and you take Lagos Ibadan Expressway, where do you go? Where do you get to at the end? Ibadan, eh? Ibadan right? Okay. He said, that is what predestination election is like. The way has been predestined. That is, if you are going to be saved, this is the predestined way. There is no other way. If you go through Ikeja and Ikorudu, you will not get to Ibadan. You can't choose your way. God has predestined the way. But about those who will go on the way, it is your choice whether or not you will go on that way. To which <laughs> Francis remembers this. <laughs> to which 
I remember looking at everybody that day. They were like, get the hell Exactly, exactly. Final. So, not Francis, but my other very close friend, because two, three of us used to lead the Bible study. I can't remember it was that night or that I engaged Francis and him, but I know I engaged him at one point. I said, so how do you, this explanation about this, the way, he said, how, I said what do you think about it? He said, perfect. He said, this has settled, that it brings both what you are saying and what it settled it. The way is predestined, but the people, there's no special choice. And I said, it was a fantastic explanation that did not do justice to that text. Because notice what the text said and it did not say. The text tells you that the way has been predestined, right? What, what is the way and what is the destination? The way that has been predestined is Christ, but what is the destination? To be conformed to the image of Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of Christ. So when we talk about predestination, basically you are saying pre and destination. What is the destination? What is the destination? To be conformed to the image of Christ. The pre, the prefix that is there, is telling you that that destination has been preordained before the foundation of the world. Do we understand? But notice what who he started with. He says in verse twenty-eight. For uh, we know that um, we know that um, all things work together for the good of them that love God. So there's a, there are some people he's describing the good of them that love God, and are the called according to his purpose. So those that love God that he's talking about, that all things work together for their good, they are also called the called according to his purpose, right? There is a purpose and God calls those people and those people have demonstrated in life, in time, that they love God, amen? So he then further describes those people. He then says, for those who were predestined. Look at it, verse 29. For those. So those people are not just the way is intrinsic to understanding this verse. For those that he predestined. The predestined way is there, but he said he also chose those that will go down. Let go see by the expressway. For those that he predestined, or those that he foreknew, he was predestined. And then somebody says, oh, for new now, uh, those that he knew before that would choose him. That is, God has a prior, because God has omniscient knowledge, God for, that is, omniscient knowledge before, he knew those who would be saved. And on that basis, he chose them. Except that that word for knowledge, as is used in the Bible, is slightly different. It, it says, it definitely says, gives us the issue of prior knowledge, but it says a whole lot more than that. What do I mean? Um, I don't know how many of you still read King James. Any King James? Who still studies in King James here? Elijah. And mommy. Mommy, don't worry. We are happy that you do. Elijah, that's why you keep going bold. All right? It keeps going back because you are still, you are still I've, I've told you. But... If when it talks about the first time, the first time the Bible talks about sex in the, um, um, uh, the first time sex occurs in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4, where it says that Adam, in King James, he says Adam did what? Yeah, you know, it's very, very, it's okay, it's sanitized. It doesn't show all that 
nonsense that the people like to do when they go and do, my, my parents generation, they say when they used to go and have fun. You understand? It's new is better. It's clean. You think that's why I put new there? Why new? Like, I know many women in this church now, and I hope that's not an indication of, but it's, it's, not, an, it's not an indication. I know them. I know, I know Nanke, I know Delmo, I know. By knowledge, we know, we believe, you know, um, um, observing something and understanding the thing. But here he's talking about Adam knowing Eve, and after that, she gave birth to a child at the name Cain. It's because knowledge itself can mean very different things. I can know my wife like her identity, but by spending more time with my wife, there's a way I know my wife, Totsi, that I don't know Cam. Just in terms of Totsi's um, character, the things that make Totsi tick. Do you understand? That is, knowledge can become more and more intimate. And the Bible is saying that the knowledge that comes between a man and a woman in love, that intimate knowledge, when it goes to the nth degree, is expressed in human sexual um, 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 uh, love. Do you understand? That is, Adam knew Eve in a way that no other man should know Eve when he slept with her. Do we understand? It's a knowledge that comes out of love. So if you open to Amos chapter 3, verse 2, or Amos 3, 1 to 2, it says about Israel, it says to them, these people who I brought out of Egypt, you alone have I known above all the nations of the world. At that point, it's like, is it that God doesn't know all? He knew the, uh, the Gergashites, he knew the Hittites, he knew the Persians, he knew the Amorites, isn't it? No, but it was Israel alone, he had loved in a covenantal way. Do we understand? He had an intimate knowledge of Israel in which he had made certain covenants with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob to set them apart as a nation for himself. That is why when Jesus says on the last day that some will come and say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these wonderful things in your name? Jesus will say to them what? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Why? I never what? But he created them. How doesn't he know them? No. He's saying that we never had an intimate saving relationship. Whenever knowledge is used in the context of, uh, of, of, of uh, in this context, it always points to something about an intimate saving relationship. So when he says those whom he for new. You know what? That Amos chapter 3 verse 2, if you look at it in the NIV, it doesn't use knowledge. If you use, look at it in KJV, it uses against uh, only you have I known among the, uh, among the nations of the world. But if you look at it in NIV, do you know what word it uses in English? Who was open? Someone open it in NIV. What? Chosen. So whether it's, it, you can use that knowledge to also mean chosen. God chose Israel. 